Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to another episode of Buzz. I'm Trev Denny and I'm joined by Dave Hendrick to talk on this particular episode about a 90s action classic, The Rock. Dave. How are you doing, first of all? And is this a movie you know well? I'm doing very well, and this is a movie that I know very well. This is this is a, a regular for me. Um, this is a film that I love. There's there's just such a combination of of characters coming together here that made this at the time a can't miss film and makes it incredibly rewatchable. A hundred percent agree. Uh, I, what I found really fascinating about this was when I started doing a little bit of a a look into it, uh, the most interesting uh, uh, thing that I found was uh, a Roger Ebert review of the film. And this is when it came out first. Um, And, you know, Ebert is one of those make or break guys. If he he does a good job for you, you're away in a hack. If he doesn't do such a good job for you, you're bang in trouble. It's not going to go well. Uh, and he is so positive in his review. The first line of his review, uh, which was published on the 7th of June, 1996. And like I said, this is the one that people opened back in the day when they used to run to the papers and the magazines, you know, in the, in the olden days of the 90s when it wasn't all online. And he says, The Rock is a first-rate slam-bang action thriller with a lot of style and no little humour. It's made out of pieces of other movies, yes, and not much in it is really new, but each element has been lovingly polished to a gloss. And there are three skillful performances, Sean Connery as Mason, Nicolas Cage and Ed Harris, he mentions as well. And it goes on and on in that vein. And it's not even one of those condescending reviews where he's looking down his snout at it and saying, I suppose it doesn't do too badly and there's a few nice things in it. I think Dave and bear with me here for a second I think if this had been much later in the career uh, of Michael Bay that Roger Ebert would have been a lot snootier and a lot snippier and a lot snobbier Uh, but I think it's because it's one of Bay's first Mm. and he is a very proficient action director and he hasn't quite gotten into all the tropes that he really settles into in his later work where it's beyond stylized I think that's probably why he gets away with it. And, and, and you have to remember that at the core here, even in those later movies where, like I say, it's perhaps style over substance, he is still very good at these set pieces and he knows what he's doing with an action movie. Yeah. Michael Bay is your nuts and bolts. You know, everything you want from an action movie is what Michael Bay gives you. Now, has he gone overboard in later work and, and given us maybe a bit too much of what we want. Yeah, he has. Um, but I mean, back then you, you consider bad boys, this Armageddon, Pearl Harbor, bad boys too. They all have their flaws. They'll all have their critics, but as action movies go, if you're not taking them too seriously and looking for them to be, I don't know, the next little women or whatever, th- these are great turn your brain off and just enjoy the film type of movies. That's a hell of a run. Let's be honest. Everybody loved Bad Boys. Mm. The Rock, we're going to talk about in great detail here. Uh, Armageddon was tremendous crack. Nonsense, of course. <laughs> Pearl Harbor, I think, was one of those ones that was overrated and a little bit uh, a little bit uh, disappointing for most people. But God almighty, could he get a cast together? Could he do set pieces? And it's a kind of a period piece. And then Bad Boys 2. That's a hell of a run for a fella. Now, I think when the Transformers movies kick in after the island, I think they start 2007. And then it's just like, oh, there's a, at least five of them. There's 07, 09, 2011, 2014, and 2017. I mean, that's just constant. Now, I will say one thing. Michael Bay directed 
a movie called Ambulance, which is, as they say now in common parlance, dropping on Netflix on Saturday. And I'm definitely going to be watching that. So let's just see where he's, where his career is at at this stage. But I have no problem with, like you say, a big old dumb action movie where you turn off your brain. If they're done right, they can be tremendous. And this, mm. this I think is the king of them. Now it's, arguable whether something like one of the others on the roster of Nick Cage uh, is better. And I genuinely mean that this guy, you want to talk about runs. He puts together a run of movies where you just go, well, I mean, the lad was literally the king of Hollywood for a while, uh, just a hit machine. Uh, and, you know, the other one that we were kicking around, will we do this or will we do that, was Con Air. And again, a clatter of uh, big names together, loads of fun, entirely daft, loads of action set pieces. You know, you knew what you were getting in the 90s. It seems to have been a high point of these types of movie. But I do think The Rock has that little bit more substance to it. And I'm looking forward to digging into why that might be with you. You've also got then the the king of the producers at this point as well. And Jerry Bruckheimer throwing his oar in. And when you think of the run that he had in the 90s as well with Crimson Tide, Dangerous Minds, The Rock, Con Air, Armageddon, Enemy of the State, and then onwards beyond that. But like all three of these coming together at this point, arguably the height of all of their careers, it, it, it is just such a rarity to get producer, director, and actor Nick Cage coming together at such high points for all of them. And like it's it's crazy when you look at Nick Cage and you look at that run he has in the 90s and then you consider where he is now and the absolute dreck that he has been throwing out for years (laughs) like it's it's not even you know you look at at what he was doing he's doing you know two three films most years almost all of them were big hits yeah now like 2011 for example he makes six films 2012 three 13 three 14, 4, there's 2 in 15. 2016, he gives us 6 films. 17 is 5. 18 is about 7. 19 is 7. 2020, he was disrupted by COVID. He only gave us 2. <laughs> but, like, 2023, he had 5 or 6 films. Like, And the thing is, most of them are utter garbage. Nick Cage is in that point in his career where he's just saying yes to everything, because obviously he got himself into quite a lot of financial trouble with not paying his taxes and whatever else and spending money like it was going out of fashion. Because, yeah. like you said, he was. He was the king of Hollywood. This is the guy that was getting all the big scripts. I was just going to ask you about that, because I didn't get into too much by way of trying to understand what's going on in Nick's personal life, because it looks complicated. Anytime he's asked anything about his own feelings or, uh, you know, uh, opinions about anything personal, he, he really does deflect. I've, I've noticed that in interviews anyway. Um, I'm looking forward to talking about him as an actor, but it is interesting you mention that because he is just working like it's going out of fashion. Mm. And we saw something similar happening with Bruce Willis and it emerged that Bruce was probably doing it to get as many paychecks as possible before he succumbed to the illness that he's, he's struggling with. And you do see other people doing it now. It seems to be that maybe the paychecks are getting a bit smaller and fellas are working uh, less smart and more just for the sake of working. Um, and if you are a lad like Nick Cage, the one thing I do know about his personal life is that he likes to buy a house. He loves, <laughs> he loves a house and he prefers a castle. If you have a fucking castle, he'll buy that instead. That lad had some incredible properties. Mm. And the thing you'll notice about it, if you just look up Nick Cage property, uh, you know, cause it takes a couple of blocks. I'm, I'm currently obsessing about property and currently obsessing about, um, this show. So I was able to just enjoy a little, uh, stroll down through Nick's property history. He usually lasts for about two years. He spends a fortune on it. 
something terrible happens, he's to sell it. He makes a fortune on the sale, but usually loses a bit of money. So he seems like a lad, to back up your point, that is working for the sake of working. But in there, in the middle of all those mad um, churn movies, there are some half-decent ones. I thought Mandy was a very interesting movie. I quite enjoyed The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent recently. You know, it's Oh, I haven't uh, seen that one, actually. Yeah, I thought it, I, I was afraid it, it'd be up its own arse, but it's actually it actually manages to sort of ride that 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 uh, comfortable lane between them. Color Out of Space is an interesting movie from 2019 that I would recommend. Uh, I really did. Also, there's another one he did with John. Uh, oh my God, what's John's name? He goes back as far as the 80s as well. What is wrong with me? He's got a sister as an actor as well. John C- uh, Cusack. John Cusack, yeah. He does a good show. There's a good movie he does with John Cusack. This It's a sort of a, uh, a, a thriller thing. Um, is it Dying of the Light? It might be that one. Oh, The Frozen Ground. Frozen Ground, yeah. Yeah, uh, I'm, just, I'm just looking through the here. That's a decent film. That is a good film. That, that is decent. And then, you know, from 2010 back... Kick-Ass is interesting. A lot of people like that. Bad Lieutenant, I'm just stop messing with the original. Stop remaking things. Uh, the I, National I, Treasures were great. I really the National them. Treasures are good. Now, I love Knowing from 2009. I thought that was a really interesting, quirky movie. And Nick going full Nick. And before we just get into this particular thing, because it's hard not to focus on Nick Cage here. He's such a such an interesting character and in this era like we say he was really kind of ruling the roost i saw a lot of commentary about him as an actor and some people being very very uh complimentary saying things like he's doing stuff with acting that's new that hasn't been done since you know the boys back in the day brando and and, and the lads sort of introduced the idea of the stanislavski or the method acting um and the idea was that Nick is very much uh, performing, shall we say, right? Mm-hmm. It's 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 a self-aware acting where he's not afraid to be big with his gestures or with his little quirky looks or his taking a pause and 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 you know feeling his feelings. Uh, in a way that naturalist actors would balk at. And Sean Penn made some bitchy comment about him at one point, how he's more of a performer than an actor. And then within a couple of years, having seen him in other things like Matchstick Men and stuff like that, he had to roll it all back. And I think as he was making a a speech at an award ceremony, said as much that he had deserved an Academy Award. Um, So that's where I wanted to start before we get into the details of The Rock because, of course, Connery's here, Harris is here. There's an array of uh, other stars in there as well, uh, of lesser lights, but still very good actors. But it's Nick Cage's show. You know, he's the guy who carries this film. And I just wanted to get from you what you make of him overall as an actor in the grand pantheon. And do you agree with that idea of him being more of a performer? I'm thinking of like, there's a moment in gone in 60 seconds where he's like, uh, getting himself psyched up and he's, he's, he's doing some little hand gestures. Like, wait, 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 now we're good to go. And it's really self-aware and it's like, he doesn't mind having these ticks and quirks. And in fact, it's very much part of his gig. And I can see how some people would see that as being, oh, I don't know, that it, 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 purists might say, well, he's not really feeling the part. I, I don't know. I like, I like my movie stars as well. Do you know what I mean? I kind of feel like in, in this film where the, the character is Stanley Goodspeed, what we get is we get Nicolas Cage plays Nicolas Cage as Stanley Goodspeed. Yeah. Like he works through this medium of himself, like you said, almost, <laughs> almost like an expressionist yeah. more so than anything else. Yeah. And, and I do, I do think like th- there is, th- when he was at the height of his power back in the nineties and the two thousands, to be fair, we, we rattled off a bunch of good movies he made in the two thousands. And by the way, he has confirmed 
uh, about 18 months ago that he is now free of debt and will be more selective in, in the roles <laughs> moving forward. Until he um, buys a castle. <laughs> until he buys his next castle or or haunted house in, in New Orleans. Um, I do feel like there, there is just this, there is the, the, there's a, a harsh view on, on Nick Cage. Like, like I say, when he was at the height of his power, I do think he, he was something different. When you went to see a Nick Cage film, you were going to see a Nick Cage performance, quite like you would if you're going to the theater. And I do feel like there was a really strong place for him in the acting world. Like not everybody has to do things a certain way. People can do things different ways. And like Sean Penn is known to be a bit of an old grump known to be a bit of a bollocks at times and he's got his way of working and it obviously works very well for Sean Penn but Nick Cage couldn't act a role the same way Sean Penn does and Nick Cage is most likely aware of that so he does it his own way and he's found his own way of working and it works for him and the filmography you know cut out the last 10-15 years of doing anything and everything that came across his plate the filmography speaks for itself. I, and there it's, are some great performances from Nick Cage over the years. And, and this is one of them. Like, he is brilliant in this film. Yeah, and this genu- film works because of him. It genuinely does. And, you know, I, I've seen, again, a sort of labelled at him. I, I, and I think he, he, sorry, labelled at him. And he had to struggle a little bit in the early days because he was, you know, he's a Coppola, right? Mm-hmm. So he he's, and, and he's in... Uh, Rumblefish from 83 and he's in the Cotton Club from 84. They're not big parts, but he's there and the nepotism thing will be, would, would have been leveled at him. But when he gets really into his own groove in 86 and 87 with uh, Peggy Sue got married and then raising Arizona, which I loved. And of course it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's the beginning of a, a, a certain producer director partnership as well that I've, great time for and then moonstruck in 87 which i did not see at the time uh and i hadn't seen it when it came on video release uh around you know in the early 90s either i hadn't seen it until i think maybe two years ago so it was an unknown entity to me and then i saw his performance and he's 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 absolutely fantastic and there's this sort of lull in terms of the hits although you know there is there's vampires kiss there's Wild at Heart in 1990 is another absolutely seminal Nick Cage role that, mm. for me, I'm a huge Lynch fan. And Nick Cage, therefore, was just bequeathed that extra level of cool by working with Lynch because I was thinking he doesn't pick losers. And, you know, his role as Sailor in that movie was one of the formative things of my young life because I realized at once that Lynch was a master and that I love this odd stuff. And I was a bit different to other people in terms of the things that I was uh, enjoying. But when he gets back on the saddle, 93 Red Rock West, uh, then there's a couple of movies there which are, you know, guarding test stuff like that. But once he gets back in the saddle properly, 95, Leaving Las Vegas, Academy Award, then The Rock, mm. then Con Air, then Face Off. And then it's City of Angels and Snake Eyes and 8 Mill, and I wouldn't give you a whole lot for any of them. Bringing out the dead, he's working with Scorsese. Gone in 60 seconds, everyone loves it. Uh, and he's, you know, the, the Wind Talkers is in there in that run as well. And then Adaptation in 2002 and Matchstick Men in 2003. You mentioned the National Treasures that come after that. You, you said a mouthful there. That's a filmography to be proud of. Yeah. And he's a lad who can carry a film. And I think at some stage there, maybe in that period you mentioned, he stopped perhaps being able to do that. Maybe he'd started to look a bit ragged. He couldn't do those leading man roles anymore. Uh, but he can now get back into it um, from what you're saying because the star power is unquestioned. It is. But also, like, go through the, the films you've listed there and, and the varying genres that they touch on. Moonstruck is a rom-com. Raising Arizona is a comedy. Uh, You mentioned Wild at Heart as well. It's another kind of romantic crime drama, kind of wide-ranging thing. He did It Could Happen to You, which is another rom-com and was a pretty big success. Um, And then he finds a, a groove with these action films. And then, again, he moves off that with Wind Talkers, which is a, you know, it's a war film. I think it's quite underrated. Uh, adaptation is another comedy. So 
he's able to do the comedies, the dramas, the action films. It's very rare you get an actor that's at home in all of those. I think I think he's probably a bit more at home in the comedy drama type of field. Yeah. But because he has like he's an imposing figure. Nick Cage is a big guy. So in the action roles, just his his physical presence alone gives him credence. He's got that kind of deep voice. He can go quite husky with it. And it gives him a bit more menace, like in Con Air. You know, he has that slow drawl. And the visual of Nick Cage lends him credibility in an action film. Far more, say, than a Tom Cruise, who I think is a great action actor. But when you look at Tom Cruise, you see a small man. You see a very, a very good-looking man. With Nick Cage, you look at a guy who's, you know, the decisions he's made in life have had consequences <laughs> on his face. You know, he's one of them. And yeah. so, like, I do think he, he's, he, yeah, he probably did get to the point where he needed to transition more into supporting roles in the same way that Sean Connery did. I mean, Sean Connery was the leading man. We get to in and around this time, and Sean Connery is much better in the supporting type role that he plays in this film. Um, I think if Nick Cage had transitioned that way, he probably continues on on a, on a stream of hits, but because he wanted to stay in the lead role or, or was just cast that way, it, you know, it, it is what it is. But certainly in this film, like he is absolutely perfect for this role because again, because because he's a good drama actor, he can kind of pull off that sort of nerdy Stanley Goodspeed side. Then because he's a big guy, he can pull off the action part of it. Like when he hits somebody, you think that's going to hurt because he's a big guy. You know, you, you, you would kind of buy that he could knock someone down with a bit of a dig. Um, that's why it was so, it was so jarring to see him in 95, um, in, in the one that he won the Academy Award even for, Las Vegas, even yeah. Las Vegas, because I, <laughs> a very Irish story for you. I went to see that with my girlfriend at the time, and um, it's a bleak fucking movie, right? Mm. It's, dark, it's dark. It's a it's a it's a it's a heavy watch, and we were sort of shuffling out with the crowd afterwards, and she looked around at me and she said, "Jesus Christ, I need a drink." <laughs> <laughs> which, which on the back of the particular theme of that film where we've just watched the lad drink himself to death I thought that is probably the most Irish thing I've ever been part of let's get into this movie in terms of the structure of it and what it's about as you mentioned Stanley Goodspeed is Nicolas Cage's character. He's an FBI scientist. We see him in the early goings, uh, showing remarkable poise in a very, very uh, traumatic situation where there's a potential uh, uh, leak uh, of some very dangerous chemicals. we mentioned Sean Connery, or you did. He is Mason, an intelligence expert who's been in prison for 30 years. Uh, he's ex-SAS, uh, and he is the only man who understands the um, underground area underneath the rock, which is, of course, Alcatraz, where the prison is. It's now just basically a tourist attraction, um, and... That is part of its attractiveness for Ed Harris's character, who's General Hummel, a war hero who has this sort of demented scheme uh, where he's going to wage war against San Francisco, only in theory, because he's hoping that the guy, he himself has won like three Purple Hearts, two Silver Stars and the Medal of Honor, and he's angered that the 83 men who have died under his command, all in special ops, uh, went unrecognized. Their families were not paid. They were not given adequate tribute. And he is a man disillusioned with the American military system, with the military-industrial complex, and the whole uh, setup. And so we see him, and he's presented very strongly as a patriot. He has this harebrained scheme where he's going to threaten to fire off these um, uh, uh, missiles carrying toxic gas at San Francisco unless his demands are met. That's the basic setup, the basic premise. Uh, Sean Connery's character is the only one who can show the crack FBI team who are going to break in and uh, disable Hummel and his men um, by bringing them in through the underground of the uh, the rock. 
um, underneath the prison. Uh, Goodspeed has to go as the only man who can possibly uh, be uh, trusted with uh, disabling the chemical weapons. Uh, and there we have our setup. And of course, the FBI team is led by Michael Bean, who, you know, is in every single action movie. I was just watching him last night in Alien. He's just there if you need a lad to be kind of tough, good looking, uh, do some action bits and bobs, not say too many things. Don't pull him under too much pressure to do too much acting. But he's a good, solid lad uh, to lead an FBI team, mm. uh, to lead a, a, a team of SEALs, as this is. Uh, pardon me, uh, Navy, Navy SEALs who go in, of course, uh, to The Rock. That's the setup, Dave. It's high concept, to say the least, but it gives us an opportunity to see Nick Cage and Sean Connery bumping off each other, and that they do well, man. I love both of them in anything they're in, usually. Uh, Connery was going through this sort of purple patch where he has, as you said, these character roles, uh, obviously still very much uh, the subject of of great um, female desire in most of these films. In this one, not so much, which is kind of nice to see. They don't bother playing up that thing. He's just this... Uh, old wise uh, wise cracking ex-SAS guy uh, and I really enjoy his character in it did I get that set up right are you happy enough with that is there anything you want to add to it before we start looking at different aspects of it just just two things number one on Connery absolutely like they they don't they don't go to that kind of suave Sean Connery James Bond type of place but they do portray him as an animal like this is this is a guy that could snap your neck in a second. Yeah, you know this the scene where he flings your man over the balcony, and he holds him, and like that's a grown man and he's holding him. Yeah, and like even you know like, it's ridiculous. Like, isn't it? it's, it's incredible. Like, it, but it's a it's a perfect portrayal of Connery. But <clears throat> you mentioned the supporting cast. This might be one of the great supporting casts we've ever seen. Michael Bean, like you said, just plays a good tough guy. But he's a great actor. You've got William Forsythe, who's another tremendous actor, also plays a great tough guy. You've got David Morse, who's probably best known to many for the Green Mile and films like that. He is one of the best supporting actors you'll ever find. You'll he never was in, find he was, he was in everything for about 15 years. Yeah. Everything. And you'll never find him give a bad performance. No. And so many leading actors have talked about if they're approached for a film and they're told... David Morse is part of the cast. They're like, oh, I'm in. Because you know you've got someone solid to work off. And John, you've got John Spencer, who, from the West Gary Wing. in the West yeah. Wing, yeah. one of my favourite actors. Yeah. Um, someone I'm a, I'm a big, big fan of. And John C. McKinley, who most people will know as Perry Cox from Scrubs. But he's a very good, serious actor as well. He's obviously in Platoon. He's in Wall Street. He's in Point Break. He's a great actor. Like this you, is a phenomenal supporting cast. Yeah, you see, you see megastars leading it. You say serious actor, but does it's, it's interesting isn't it, to watch McGinley. McGinley's always the comic relief in these mm. things. Yes, he's playing a serious role, but he's always there with the quip. And I think it was really interesting to see him get that role in Scrubs, where ah, oh, this is what he was always supposed to be. Yeah, that's you the know thing. what I mean. He's that, he like, has that amazing like, delivery. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he's he's absolutely phenomenal. Like what what a brilliant supporting cast. And then like you said, you've got Ed Harris, who really, really great actor, can play a wide range of roles. But by God, he plays a bastard well. He does. I love Ed Harris. I, I there's something about the lad, he's just He's he's not a big lad. He's got he's got like a, a very you know kind of classically handsome square jawed look to him, uh, like myself, follically challenged, and I think carries that very well. He's always he's one of those guys who you just go well, the, the, you know, being bald is actually quite cool on on Ed Harris. So I I I I felt uh, when I, in my younger days, it's always nice to see lads like that who can carry it off. He is absolutely brilliant. You can feel he ha he's one of the few lads who would have the gravitas to play this role mm. of the lad who is so fucking outraged that he's going to do something completely mental. And then when it starts to go awry, which of course it does, and we have that slaughter of the Navy SEALs when the lads break into the rock first. 
and you can see the pain all over Harris's face. He's morally completely compromised. He realizes it's gone to shit and he cannot really, the suffering, he is, it's etched all over his, his face. I think his performance here is brilliant. He's really in many ways, the core that holds it together because Cage and, and Connery can do whatever they want. Mm. If Harris is a shit bad guy and you don't believe him and you don't believe his moral quandary, then you don't believe anything here. Like, let, for example, the other guy you didn't mention who's in the supporting cast is Tony Todd, who I've loads of time for, Candyman, etc. Yeah. Uh, again, another lad who's got great presence. But I will say this, if it was Tony Todd who was playing the general, it would be far more two-dimensional. He would be a two-dimensional bad guy. Ed Harris is absolutely torn right to the end, right to the end. And I think that really gives them the movie a sort of a moral core that even the bad guy is tortured. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, a hundred percent because at, at the, at, at the, the root of general Hummel, he is a soldier first and foremost. He's sworn to protect the good old USA. So to do anything that harms the USA goes against his moral compass. And, you know, you can see that with him. You can see that what he's doing is obviously wrong, but he's doing it from a, a good place. He believes in his heart that what he's doing is the right thing. He's trying to force somebody's hand. Ultimately, he's not going to go through with what he's saying. He's trying to force their hand. And then it all goes to shit. And like you said, he, he then has to battle to try and hold it together. You know, we gave a little bit of time and a little bit of chat to uh, Nick Cage. It would be daft of us not to spend a little bit of time talking about someone that I know we both admire in the shape of Sean Connery. Because if it's Nick Cage's movie, and it kind of very much is, he drives it. And, you know, of course, as Stanley Goodspeed, you alluded to it earlier on, you know, he has the various talents as a performer to be able to carry it off. <laughs> but again, we're supposed to suspend disbelief and watch a theoretically a lab rat with no field experience mm. suddenly turn into this lad who can, uh, you know, uh, fire a gun with the best of them and, and pull off these incredible athletic feats and all the rest of it. So that is, you know, where you're, this is where we're in firmly in Michael Bay territory, right? That's fine. But again, if Ed Harris is sort of the moral core of the film, uh, then you've got, I think the performance by Connery is, 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 is another anchor because you have to, you know, again, yes, it's a daft action movie, but you have to believe, like you say, that this guy's an animal, that this guy could do something which is actually physically impossible, like that little thing you mentioned where he's hanging on to the guy, uh, as if an old man that, that could, would have the physical body strength to do that. You have to believe, you have to buy into that. Mm. Uh, and, you know, when he escapes there after, soon after that, that's a lovely sequence actually where he wants the hotel suite and he wants the haircut and he, it's all a big setup so he can get, uh, you know, uh, uh, John, what's his name? Liam McGarry was John Spencer's character, and just you know, uh, threaten him again and and put him, put him, give him, give him a reminder of what injustice has been carried out against him. But he pretty much allows himself to be recaptured then, um, mm. because we're supposed to believe that he has so much love for this daughter that he doesn't really know that you know he's missed out on her entire life growing up that he does not want to sacrifice her. So he wants to be part of it for that reason. At least we assume that because it's never really fully explained that little part of the plan. But we, I think at one stage, Goodspeed says to him something about his daughter uh, to kind of, that's what, what, what gets him in on, on the mission. But I do love this little turn from him. I love little bits in it, like the set piece you mentioned, the one where they're escaping from the cells where he's doing the rope thing is absolutely fantastic. Again, you know, you buy into the fact that this guy has the nous and the experience. He's been here before. He's trial and error for over so many hours and days. And, you know, you, you get Shawshank vibes of it and he knows exactly how to open the gates. And then he knows where to go in the, in the labyrinth underneath. And I just, I, I have to say, I think he is very believable in that role of the ex SAS man. Oh, yeah, 100%. What I love about this, though, is the contrast between Mason and Goodspeed. You've got Goodspeed, who is a nerd. He's a lab rat. And he is 
thrust into this action hero kind of role. So you're, you're to believe that this, you know, this guy who's whatever microbiologist or whatever he is, is capable of these great feats of, like you said, athleticism and, you know, gunfighting and whatever else. And then you've got Connery, who's this trained killer, basically. But he's also a genius. But he's a genius in the way that only a trained killer or, you know, a a military-trained operative is in how he plans out all these different escapes and these elaborate um, charades. And he's also then, he's the anti-hero of the movie. Like, he's the bad guy that you come to really like and root for and you want him to find his freedom. And the scene where he leads them all on a merry dance, driving the car, is genuinely, its the, that car chase is one of the great car chases in film history, in my view. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And there's, there's humor to him. There's a seriousness to him. There's a depth to him because of the, the link with the, the daughter, like you said. And again, it's, it's all about sort of immersing yourself in that character and trying to view the world through his prism where he believes he's been wronged. He wants to right some wrongs with his daughter who he admits he has failed in the past. And you, you root for him. He's the one you root for. It should be Stanley Goodspeed. He's the good guy. This this miscreant who's with him, he's sort of objectional in many ways. But as the film goes on, he's the one you're rooting for more than any. What was your favorite Connery turn? Uh, I mean, we, we spent a bit of time going back through Nick Cage's back catalog. And Connery's another one who has worked and worked and worked. But there are things, you know, the James Bond stuff is what it is. And, you know, he's obviously, it's it's probably his most iconic role. He is probably the most iconic James Bond. I don't think it's it's very hard to argue with, with, with that as a statement, whether he's your favorite or not. He is the one that, you know, is embodies the role more than anyone else, I think. It's fair to say. Mm. But there are probably far more recent turns from him that would be the things that I love. For example... I loved him in The Untouchables, even though that's not an Irish accent, Sean. It's a great, it's a great performance. I loved him in The Name of the Rose, which is one of my favorite films. I, 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 I could watch that endlessly. It, I don't know who did the casting, but Jesus Christ, they actually really nailed it. Someone went and said, I want you to get all the weirdest looking lads, right? No, no, they're not weird enough looking. Go back and get me some weirder looking lads. And they all got cast. Really, really interesting movie. Kind of a whodunit set in a monastery. Absolutely love him in that. I think it's a, it's a, it's a role almost you would never have thought it was made for him. And yet it is at that point in his career. <laughs> and at this stage, the Thatch is well and truly gone. Mm. He's gone all white bearded. And he's being voted the sexiest man alive by People magazine two years after this movie is made, uh, The Name of the Rose, two years after his his turn as a sort of a veteran in The Untouchables, which is quite interesting. And I love him in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And I love him in The Hunt for Red October. Yeah. They're my favorites. I have to say, they're the ones I go back to. They're my go-to Connery performances. I know there are much cooler ones. I know there are, and I've seen them, but these are the ones that I love because there's something, these, all of those movies, The Untouchables, Indiana Jones, and The Last Crusade, The Hunt for Red October, they're kind of warm hug movies like, like The Rock is, and he, there he is at the heart of them. Yeah, a hundred percent. And like, there's, there's, a, there's a few others, and like, I think his performance in The Presidio, which isn't a great film, but I think his, his performance is outstanding in that. Uh, like you said, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I love him in that. I I I, lo- I love Rising Sun with him and Wesley Snipes. I, oh, I, I haven't love, seen that. I haven't. Seen I love a buddy cop movie, yeah. especially when they're like an odd couple. And Wesley Snipes, another one like Nick Cage that had this incredible run, and then got himself into financial bother and made lots and lots of dreck to pay off his bills. Um, and one I love, which is I think it's his second to last role is Finding Forrester. It's just a really nice story. It's a good film. It's not a great film. It's not a spectacular Sean Connery performance, but he plays this old curmudgeon who 
doesn't like black kids and then is befriended by a black kid. And you see him start to, like, he locked himself away from the world in many ways. And he starts to come back out of his shell and reintroduce himself. And, and, you know, if you haven't seen it, I won't spoil it, but, but do go and watch it. I think it's a really good film, but he just, like the untouchables to me is like, like you said, it's not, it's not an Irish accent. It, it just isn't shown and you should do better. We're not that far away. You, you could have come across, spent a bit of time here. We could, we could have shown you the way, but like he, he's just incredible in that role. And like you said, look, he, he will always be James Bond, whether he's your favorite Bond or not. He, he is James Bond. When you, when you close your eyes and you think of James Bond, you see Sean Connery. But you know, what he, you know what he shares with Nick Cage, and this is just occurring to me now, is that both of them, and I'd include one of my favourites, one of the lads who I used to watch and think that made me want to be an actor back in the day, and you wouldn't think it. Mel Gibson, I'd include him in this as well. They're movie stars. Yes, they're mm. good actors, and they can absolutely do a job, and some of them have incredible dramatic chops, don't get me wrong, but they're movie stars. Nick Cage is Nick Cage in most movies. And you've just basically outlined how Sean Connery is Sean Connery in most movies. I mean, when he's playing Marco Ramius in the Hunt for Red October, right, that's not a fucking Russian accent. <laughs> he just does his Sean Connery voice in every yeah. single film. And it's such an iconic voice. It's such a unique and one-off voice that nobody gives a shit. It's Connery. Let him do it. He can do what he wants. It's it's true, and it's his delivery, it's his cadence, it's just the accent. When he, the line in this film, "Welcome to the Rock," it's so simple. Yeah. But if anyone else says it, it's yeah. meaningless because he says says it. It's literally when you watch the trailer, it's the highlight of the trailer for this film. Yeah. It's it's the it's the Sean Connery-ness of his performance. It's 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 fantastic and it, it's true. Like I mentioned him earlier, Tom Cruise is is a movie star. He's not a great actor. Not even, he's probably not even a good actor, but he's a movie star. But these guys, these are good actors. But what they realized is that what people wanted to see, Sean Connery realized people didn't want to see a Russian submarine captain. They wanted to see Sean Connery as a Russian submarine captain. Nick Cage realized they didn't want to see, you know, some nerd who becomes the action hero. They want to see Nick Cage as the nerd who becomes the action hero. So they portray, uh, you know, a blown up version of themselves and it, it works for them and it works brilliantly in this film. Like those two together, it, it just, they bounce off each other so well. And you can always tell, you know, when you get to, kind of alphas as they would both have been at times in their career, Connery earlier cage at this point, And you put them together. Oftentimes the, the chemistry can be a little bit awkward. And, and as the, as the viewer, you'll notice, Oh, that doesn't seem right. Like they're not, they, they don't mesh well together. These two mesh perfectly. Yeah. There's moments where they dislike each other. There's moments where they don't have patience for each other. And then there's moments where they're very, very good together. And I think that's that's what makes this film so good. Yeah, there's echoes of of the 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 relationship between Alec Baldwin and and him in in Red October actually mm. in this too, uh, where you know you have the the younger man sort of a bit irked by the the older man dropping wisdom bombs left right and center, but it, it there is there is that sort of chemistry there and. I, there's at least there's two things I want to mention before we wrap up on this because and I'm gonna I'm gonna throw it out there uh, as as sort of a jump off point for you to come to, towards the end of your 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 assessment as well uh, or to completely ignore and go your own way but the two things I want to mention is the Michael Bayist move, m- moment of this entire film uh, the thing that I when I think of this mo- movie I always think of this scene is we've got the incredible tension of the government have decided after the most outrageously long-winded speech by the president, what is he doing? Shut up, you monk. It's unbelievable. What is he doing? Anyway, uh, they decide it's we're going to have to blitz the island and the hostages uh, for the greater good. And so we've got the, the fighters... 
uh, zoning in the target and they're literally seconds from hitting the button. In fact, one of them does hit the bombs away button and they see at the very last second Nick Cage in full dramatic kneeling down (laughs) posture with his arms aloft holding two green flares and the smoke and the colour and the drama and the high tech and the music we should mention as well Zimmer yeah Zimmer things Uh, all of these things coming together to make the most Michael Bay moment I've ever seen in my life. And the the other thing I wanted to say, and, you know, like I say, these are just my final thoughts. The other thing I wanted to say as well was, you know, I I, I love the fact that we're teased with the fact that Mason was in prison and kept in prison for so long was not so much the he was a criminal, was that he was privy to secrets and he cannot be allowed Mm. Now, in the real world, you and I both know that that he doesn't get put to prison. He ends up like everybody else who has too many secrets. Uh, shot uh, twice in the back of the head, the worst case of suicide I've ever seen. That's what happens. And, and buried in the bog of Bohemian. That's that's what happens to lads like that. Uh, but no, he's just left to rot in prison. And the, the secrets he has are some of the most deeply held US government and British government secrets. I absolutely love this because the little sort of uh, bonus scene at the end where Connery has kind of tipped Nick the, the, the wink as to how to go and find this little microfilm that he's stashed with the secrets. It's in a certain church in a certain place. And uh, Nick and his new bride uh, go off and break into the church and liberate the film and the the movie ends with hey honey you want to know who killed jfk i love, I love all of that because you know me dave i love the i love the, the 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 old conspiracies and i love the idea that there are all these incredibly uh, darkly uh, held secrets that are about to be revealed at the end it's a nice little quirk and a nice little twist there are my two outstanding moments that i wanted to mention before we finished anything else you want to wrap up with um the, the 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 Michael Bay scene that he realized probably in post production, Christ, that's good. Yeah, I'm and Michael then, Bay. <laughs> I, this is who I am now as a director, and proceeded to have a version of that that scene in every film since. It's great. Um, you mentioned Sean Connery been voted as the sexiest man in the world multiple times in the late eighties. Ed Harris was once described by the New York magazine as the thinking woman's sex symbol, which is is quite a good one. Um, But the other thing is, this film came very close to being very bad. And we probably would be doing a buzz on it, but we'd be doing it as, you know, one of them brilliant bad films that you watch because it's funny. The original casting for Stanley Goodspeed was to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. My God. And I can't imagine how bad this film would have been (laughs) with Arnold Schwarzenegger, with those big shovels for hands and sausagey fingers in trying to do microbiologist type of thing. Thankfully, thankfully, Mr. Schwarzenegger did not like the script and, uh, and turned it down, um, which is great. There's also some, some curious stuff about the script. So I'm just going to read this off Wikipedia. Jonathan Hensley participated in writing the script, which has become the subject of a dispute with the Writers Guild of America. The spec script by David uh, David Weisberg and Douglas Cook was reworked by several writers. But other than the original team, Mark Rossner was the only one granted official credit by the Guild arbitration. The rule is that the crediting writing team must contribute 50% of the final script effectively limiting credits to the screenplay's initial authors plus one rewrite teams. Despite their work on the script, work on the script, neither Hensley nor Aaron Sorkin was credited in the film. Now, I had no idea that Aaron Sorkin was part of the script writing in this. Michael Bay wrote an open letter of protest in which he criticized the arbitra- arbitration pro- procedure as a sham and a travesty. travesty, can't speak. He said Hensley had worked closely with him on the film and should receive screen credit. 
Quentin Tarantino was also an uncredited screenwriter. So, you know, we talked about in the 90s, you had Michael Bay, you had Nick Cage, you had Jerry Bruckheimer. They were the top two guys. Quentin Tarantino, in many ways, with his explosion with Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, is one of the seminal pieces of film, of people of film in the 90s. And Aaron Sorkin, we mentioned The West Wing earlier on, um, when talking about John Spencer, again, one of the seminal people in Hollywood and TV in the 90s. So they're all involved in this film. And I think, I think it is an outstanding action film. And it is one I would highly recommend if you haven't seen it, that you make sure you watch it. That's quite the, the, um, concurrence of talent there. All right. It really is. And if, I don't know how I forgot this. I meant to mention this very briefly, just for those of you who are interested in this type of thing as well. Um, I have a far better version, but uh, when you started talking, I realized there was something I wanted. So I'm just going to read a little bit from the wiki as well. A scene from this film was the basis for incorrect and false descriptions of the Iraqi chemical weapons program. Britain's secret intelligence service was led to believe Saddam Hussein was continuing to produce weapons of mass destruction by a false agent who based his reports on the movie according to the Chilcot Inquiry. And you can go into more detail on that, and I highly recommend that you do, which, uh, that's just stunning. Especially you, you, could, given- you could just imagine Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and the, the lads sitting around and going, now, lads, listen, there's a Scottish fella who has some secrets, but there's this American guy, and he's found that they're using, they look at this scene, lads, look at him trying to wave off the bars. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Oh, dreadful group of lads. <laughs> just amazing stuff. Uh, it's absolutely well worth your read. That because you know, again, especially considering the subplot about um, secrets and um, mm. government fuckery, tremendous stuff. But I think we shall draw a line under the rock there. We could rabbit on the two of us, knowing knowing ourselves ad nauseum. We could take Ed Harris next and go down the, uh, the that route. Um, but we will just continue our plan of trying to do these somewhere between 40 and 60 minute presentations of popular films. We might go back contemporary next time. I don't know what you think, but that one that was, again, a kind of a recent hit on Netflix, uh, Leave the World Behind. That might be a con- kind of reasonable contemporary one yeah. we can have a look at, perhaps. And we will definitely continue in our vein of throwing the odd classic out as well, uh, because, you know, they're nice little bits of nostalgia that we can all enjoy. But for yet another episode of Buzz, our second of the week, you may notice pattern here. I'll say goodbye from myself, Trev Downey, and from my co-host, Dave Hendrick, it's been a treat, and we'll talk to you again soon. Sports Social Podcast Network.